everyone. I'm Jennifer Braceros from the Independent Women's Law Center. Today I have the great privilege of speaking with Representative Daryl Issa about what is, in my view, the foundational issue of the day, the issue that impacts all others, and that is the federal judiciary. Congressman Issa, who represents California's 50th Congressional District in the San Diego area, has been a leader when it comes to issues involving the federal courts. He's a senior member of the House Judiciary Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee and served as chairman of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee from 2011 to 2015. Thank you for joining us, Congressman Issa. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for having me on, and, and thank you for the interest in the courts. You know, one of the things that I find uh, rather odd in our in our Constitution and in how we've gotten where we are, uh, in the words of uh, the late Justice Scalia, who said, we are, we, we are designed to react in all cases. We are never designed to reach out and do or take anything. And when, I, when he first said that, I was really just thinking about cases where, you know, Justice Scalia would say, well, look, we could only decide on the case you got to us. If, if you don't get the right case to us, you don't get the answer you want, even if it is out there waiting to uh, be heard. But the same is true in the organization, the size, the pay, the administration. So much of what the courts can do cannot be decided by the courts, uh, even whether they have daycare uh, available for uh, officers and, and employees of the court is, in fact, falls, to const falls constitutionally to Congress. And so I take that very seriously as we contemplate all the things that should be done to make the court work better. That's a very good point, and I think it's one that most people don't realize. Um, and also, I think that so many Americans um, are, are focused on the Supreme Court and pay a lot of attention when there's a Supreme Court uh, resignation or vacancy. Everybody tunes in and watches the confirmation hearing and, and cares about the process. Um, but the rest of the time, people, you know, most people who aren't lawyers are going about their lives and not paying attention to who's being nominated to, to the lower federal courts and not paying attention to what provisions Congress is making for the administration of the courts. But I wonder if you could explain why it's an issue that people should care about, why judicial nominations um, and confirmations and the administrations of the courts are something um, that, that, in my view, really is foundational, that, that ends up impacting everybody. Well, let me give you one that is uh, the esoteric beyond the esoteric. Unless you live in the Eastern District of Texas, you probably aren't aware that there is a more than a cottage. There is a large industry that has been built around patent litigation. Uh, we all get up every day thinking about how important intellectual property is, and uh, we we understand that we buy things based on brand name. We understand that uh, uh, the portfolio of patents or technology that makes Apple or some other company, IBM, uh, successful and repays them for their innovation, uh, not the least of which we're having a discussion, of course, about uh, the patents on the vaccines that have been developed for COVID mm -hmm. as we speak. But most people don't know 
that under the current setup that Congress has created, it is possible and every day more than half those cases end up before a handful of judges in one small part of the country, and not particularly a high-tech area. The Eastern District of Texas, Tyler and Marshall, Texas, is not uh, you know, a, a treasure trove of R&D, but in fact, they find a few judges that are sympathetic to plaintiffs uh, who have or typically have patents but don't practice, meaning they've, they've gotten some patent, but they're not the, the company that developed it and so on. Uh, that sounds ridiculous, but it goes beyond the judges because the misbehavior, in my view, of a couple of judges who take these cases and, and seem to lopsidedly decide them based on what are often called patent trolls, uh, the Supreme Court and all of the higher courts are in this case unable to change the law that causes that to be a, uh, a legal transaction. And they've tried. We've passed some laws. The courts have tried to uphold it. But these cases continue to be before a handful of judges. And because of the nature of patent cases, uh, it, it can be extremely expensive to go through trial the first time. It is even more expensive to get to the federal circuit, the one appellate court for them. And uh, few, if any, cases are typically uh, granted cert uh, by the Supreme Court. As a result, if you get railroaded there, you're more likely to pay a billion or more dollars if you're a company like Intel or whatever than to take your chances on the rest of the process. It happens every day. Congress created the situation, and Congress is going to have to change it. So that goes beyond just picking a judge because, as you know, we, uh, we choose judges for life. And uh, you know, for whatever reason, uh, that's probably the only way that we can keep an independent judiciary is to have the judges not find themselves at the whims of who the next uh, president of the United States is or the next Congress. But having said that, uh, as we're looking to expand the court, we also have to look to level the playing field for private individuals and businesses so that they can have a greater chance of getting an impartial judge uh, than they currently have. And I'm only giving that one example, but we could go through a myriad of, of situations in which if you shop the right region of the country, you can get a different answer very often. And so, for better or worse, that's a bad thing uh, to have in the courts. So let's stick with that example for a moment. I know that you yourself are the holder of multiple patents, um, and I wonder what what would be your proposed solution to that to that problem that you identify with with forum shopping for certain judges. Well, the the current last set of legislation, and I was here for some of it, was clear that we wanted the uh, plaintiff to have to go to and this is a non-practicing plaintiff, to go to where the defendant's principal place of business is. Um, if you're a practicing, let's just say you're, you're actually making product uh, that's under the patent, you're entitled to be where you make the product. But mm. those are the two forums uh, that Congress has, has given. That you, can, you, can pra you can sue where you make the product if they have any nexus to that region, and you can certainly sue where that business's principal uh, location is. 
the challenge, and if that if that company is located outside the United States, then you're free to go anywhere uh, within the United States. So we have a set of rules, but in spite of repeatedly doing it, we have found ourselves still with this heavy caseload uh, in before just a few chosen judges. So that's that's an example that I think goes beyond just choosing judges. We're going to expand the court in the years to come, uh, though, and one of the challenges is going to be to make sure that the expansion is level. We want to mm-hmm. make sure that uh, uh, that that if you're living in, I don't know, let's call it Kenny Buckport, Maine, for example, that you have a reasonable expectation that the federal court works for you there just as it works for you if you live in San Jose or in New York City. Uh, and so part of the challenge is to make sure that we have sufficient judges in each area and that the caseloads are appropriate to that region. Uh, and form shopping is one of the other things that Congress is going to be dealing with. But as we've been asked by the uh, Judicial Conference on behalf of the, the Chief Justice to add roughly 70 new uh, positions at the district court level, uh, we're, we're going to have to consider making sure that we allocate these judges to the right area and that the cases follow uh, the, those judges so the caseloads not be unfairly too great or too, where, too uh, low somewhere else. And Jennifer, as you know all too well, the reason for that is that old axiom that justice delayed is justice denied. The most important thing in America, of course, is the outcome being fair and appreciated by both parties to a bit impartial. But if it's delayed excessively, it can tilt the scale, even if the eventual outcome might be right. Many people can't wait eight years to get through an antitrust right. case. Or, and or I, I agree with that. But what I think is interesting, you know, the the judicial conference has proposed, as you said, more than 70 new judgeships. Um, I'm not sure, however, that having more bodies in, in black robes solves the problem because, as you know, and I've, I've clerked for a couple of different federal judges, um, every judge you know, once they're on the bench, they run their courtroom their own way. There's no sort of requirement that a judge get through a certain number of cases a year. Um, some judges some judges take lots of vacations. Some judges try cases every day. Some judges don't. And it seems to me that if one wants to expedite the administration of justice, there are other rules or, or, or procedures that could be put in place um, visiting judges can be used, for example, in districts where that you know that are overloaded. Um, uh, you know, uh, the the chief judge can implement certain certain workload processes. Um, I'm not sure that adding dozens and dozens of new district court judgeships necessarily solves the problem. What's your take on that? Well, I couldn't agree more that modernization of the court. Uh, a better and more uh, uniform expectation for the load that a judge will uh, will take. In other words, the work ethic. Uh, you know, the uh, the Constitution intends uh, judges to have uh, a lifetime appointment based on good behavior. 
to me, good behavior includes coming to work and doing the job. And, and I'll just give you an example. Uh, Amy Berman Jackson, Judge Jackson on the uh, D.C. court, violated no local rules when she took approximately seven years to bring to conclusion the, uh, the case of holding Eric Holder in contempt of Congress. She took more than a year just to decide whether she was going to essentially give us standing uh, and, and of course, as it delayed, Eric Holder left office, even President Obama left office uh, before the conclusion. So uh, an example where theoretically the United States House of Representatives, one of the most powerful bodies on earth, uh, was stymied by a judge who took dramatically longer on a case that was pretty similar to the one that Judge Bates had decided uh, uh, on behalf of the opposite party of, of Congress years earlier. Uh, the question of, of standing had been decided, but she decided to ignore that and, and, and look at it slowly and carefully with plenty of time off for her own personal challenges in life. So uh, I, I've been personally frustrated uh, as a, uh, in a sense, an officer of the court by being the plaintiff in that case. Uh, I'm very aware that we need some reform. Uh, one of the challenges in the reform, though, Jennifer, that, that I think is so important is that we have created a great many magistrate judges, and mm. we, do not, we do not use magistrate judges nearly as much as we should. We do not uh, have, if you will, from region to region, uniformity in what they do. And so one of the, the things that my committee is considering as we speak is that although the conference has asked for these additional judges, uh, they really haven't given us uh, all of the facts that we want to have in order to decide, can we harmonize the rules? Uh, some of the cases that are the worst, for example, antitrust cases. Uh, some years ago, we instituted what was called the pilot pa uh, patent pilot program which helped to uh, streamline the process of patents getting to judges who were both interested and were willing to put the time into these complex cases. Uh, antitrust seems to beg for a similar uh, process. And so this, this idea of, of modernizing the court by including, and I'll call it quasi-specialization, uh, is going to be considered in the months to come as will recognition that so much of the caseload uh, really doesn't need to be in front of the, uh, uh, the, the judge, him, him or herself, initially, uh, and that uh, many of the trials uh, could be very much done not by an Article III judge. So all of these things are going to be put into the mix. Uh, the other thing is that there are modernization techniques that need to be used uh, that the court is reluctant on. And that goes from, uh, if you will, at the appellate level, cameras in the courtroom. Uh, it goes to the publishing uh, of, of opinions uh, and making them free and available. Uh, it, the list goes on and on of all the things in which the court has a tradition of moving slowly but not moving uniformly. Uh, Congress has the right to say you can, you can make your rules, 
uh, or that we will make some of the rules. But we certainly have a right to say that those rules must have a uniformity uh, mm-hmm. so that a plaintiff and a defendant uh, can have somewhat even playing fields. And as you know, having clerked for uh, judges, although each judge runs their courtroom as they see fit, they are held to the uh, uh, the guidelines given in the district and the circuit. Mm-hmm. And those those circuits should not be different as to rules because by definition, it means that a an attorney practicing ha- is at a disadvantage if they're an out-of-towner. And I can understand in state court why that might happen, but there's no reason that, that once you've practiced as a, a, before the federal bar that you should uh, have to sort of relearn every time you go into a different region of the country, particularly when you may be dragged there as a corporate lawyer. You may be dragged there on behalf of a client from place to place uh, you should you should still see, you might see different judges, but you should see a court that operates much more similarly, particularly as the time schedules. Right. So, is it fair to say that that of these seventy some odd judgeships that the Judicial Conference has requested, that you'll consider all of the requests, but that Congress and your committee in particular um, is is not just going to rubber stamp that request? You're going to look long and hard at exactly what's needed in what district and whether or not they can combine uh, that additional personnel with some, with some modernization and reforms. I think you said it very well. I'll add just two small things to it. One of them is uh, that there is uh, a split between the majority and minority. The majority actually under uh, subcommittee chairman uh, Hank Johnson uh, has proposed nearly twice as many slots as were asked for by uh, the court. Uh, and uh, uh, without being unfair to my, uh, uh, my subcommittee chairman, uh, he feels very strongly that this is his party and his president's time to expand the court uh, in their vision. And that includes uh, some outright proposals that there isn't enough diversity and that this is their chance to create that diversity. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I know that you've um, said that uh, any legislation expanding the, the size of the court should delay the creation of new judgeships until 2025 um, or stagger the, the appointments over the course of several presidential terms. That makes eminent sense to me um, because people should know when they go and vote for president that this this person's going to have X number of judgeships to fill or, you know, an approximate number of judgeships to fill. Um, And, you know, we hear a lot about packing the Supreme Court, but it seems to me that if, if President Biden is given an opportunity to appoint 100 new district court judgeships, even with the advice and consent of the senators from those states, that that's another form of court packing. Would you agree? Oh, totally. It, it would be court packing if we allowed it. Uh, and, and it's not that, we, we, that this hasn't been viewed before. Uh, three years ago, uh, my legislation, uh, based on an earlier request, anticipated exactly that, that the, uh, if passed, it would, uh, it would have taken effect after the election we just had. 
which oddly enough was one in which I was saying, no, Donald Trump would not get to, to take advantage of these additional slots uh, unless he was reelected. Um, oddly well, enough, what's good the, for the, the Democrats is good for the, is good for the gander, right? I mean, these rules should apply and, neutrally and, no matter who's in power. Exactly. And good for the country. And as it turns out, had the Democrats embraced my bill uh, wholeheartedly and, and it got passed through the Senate, uh, there would be uh, some 60 new slots, be, both at the district and a few at the appellate level, that would be available to this president. Uh, this president, by the way, has approximately 100 vacancies as we speak today, where judges have retired or taken senior status, and more coming all the time. And so uh, it's not that the, the President Biden, uh, in the next uh, 18 months, isn't going to have an opportunity to put a substantial amount of his views into the court. Uh, it's just that the uh, it has been more than, well, it's been since 2005 to have any expansion in the court, and twice that since in the 90s when uh, we had the last major expansion in the court. Um, when you only do these things every 20 years, there's certainly no reason that you can't uh, phase them in in a way that lets multiple senates do the confirmation process and multiple, potentially multiple presidents participate. Uh, having said that, we do have a challenge in the court. Caseloads are going up. The times to get your day in court, particularly if it's not a criminal case, are going out in length. Uh, and the uh, Supreme Court continues to take, in total, less cases, which means that if you don't get it right the first time and you don't get it right at the appellate court, uh, their chances of getting it uh, reversed or made right by the Supreme Court, go down. And I think that's one of the most important things that people are looking at is if, the, if, if you have very little chance, then you've got to get it right at the district court and you've got to get it timely. Right. And in terms of appointing uh, individuals to, to the lower courts, both to the district courts uh, and to the courts of appeals, the Democrats um, in, in recent months have made a big deal about diversity, that that should be a primary factor in, um, in who the president selects and who the senators help him select um, for, those, for those positions. Um, what is your take on that? Well, I think it's important that the court start off reflecting uh, people who have, uh, I, will, I will include youth, uh, youth being uh, the the vigor to serve 20 or more years because that's in that's in the best interest of the country that that judges serve for a, per a longer period of time not a shorter period of time uh, secondly that they have a background education and capability uh, and third that they reflect in total uh, the best of America's diversity and I think I always put it third because, I, first of all, if, if the audience of people under 50 or under 55 who have uh, good experience, sufficient experience in whatever as a trial court lawyer or as a partner uh, working administrative law of some sort, uh, that's the first thing that I want to look to in, in a judge's capability. But the second one, and, and probably, or many of these judges have already been judges in state court, uh, but then the second part, I think, is so important that we not exclude 
anyone. Uh, you know, famously, Richard Nixon uh, asked on the promotion of a number of officers why there was not a single African-American. And when they came back, they came back with Colin Powell as a highly qualified uh, fine officer who then was favorably considered. So I'm not beyond sympathy to legitimate questions of is the mix in some way wrong for some reason, perhaps Mm -hmm. just overlooking. But -hmm. having said that, that's not what's going on. They're specifically looking for qualities that they want to reach out to. They want to specifically rebalance the court rather than looking through the best and the brightest who have applied and asking from that group, uh, is there something missing or why is there something missing? Uh, right. Jennifer, I, I will make it, I'll make it clear that one of the challenges that I think we all face is that uh, the biggest question is if there were more women going to law school and practicing law, why are there not an equal amount, at least, of women on the courts? And the answers are complex and, and need to be looked at. But when, uh, when if on the day that an equal number of men and women apply for the court with equal qualification, I certainly want to uh, see that uh, and hope that a president would would give equal consideration. That's not what's going on now. They're looking for right. set asides for a specific uh, what they would call you know need to uh, to create or deal with past wrongs. And that, that usually causes you to, to grab people out of tokenism rather than the best and the brightest. Well, and unfortunately, sometimes I believe that diversity for the left is a pretext for left-wing ideology. And in fact, many, many members uh, aren't that interested in diversity when it comes to Republican nominees. I'm, I'm old enough to remember how the Senate treated Miguel Estrada when he was appointed to the yeah, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Um, I'm certainly old enough to remember how they treated Clarence Thomas. And so diversity is, you know, one of many important qualities that that I think politicians can rightfully consider when making appointments. But let's not pretend that what the what the Democrats are proposing here is really about representation. Uh, in my view, it's not. No, it, it clearly isn't. And uh, uh, one of the other things that I think that my Democratic friends often don't give enough credit for is that trend lines are, in fact, to be considered for whether we're becoming or transitioning to where somebody thinks we should be. Uh, When you look at, uh, uh, and I'll just give you a number that I happened to look up for this interview, in 2020, 37.4% of lawyers were females and 62% were men. Uh, if we go up into mid-career and higher career, the number of women drop off. That has nothing to, that is a decision based on who applies to law school and then who practices and continues to practice. You can't fix that by reaching out and saying, we're going to engineer changes you can only say, let's look to find those people who apply, 
who have the uh, the background and experience have taken the time. I happen to be in the Southern District of California. We have a long history of, of some very good women on the bench. Uh, our courthouses, uh, are, are one of our two courthouses is named for two women who served on the bench, uh, who were fairly early on in the process of federal judges uh, uh, being on the court in significant numbers. Having said that, the example of Clarence Thomas is such a good example of his problem was it was not that he was African-American, it was that he was conservative, and they were would set aside the fact that he was clearly a diversity, quote, candidate, uh, because they disagreed with his ideology. That is that is the most repugnant of all of the processes, and the one that we that I think all of us need to reject. Uh, having said that, we have another problem in the court system uh, that I'd like to make sure that we understand, and that is, you know, you notice I mentioned youth. The current retirement system in the court, the Rule of 80, uh, really does create a lot of pressure for judges who would very likely serve longer to make an economic decision that basically they could take uh, more than half of their pay and go on and do something else while they're still young enough to do it. Uh, I believe Mm. that part of the the challenge in the court today is that the retirement system encourages, and, and they don't all succumb to that. Many of those who take senior status and continue to take heavy caseloads are doing so essentially when uh, they could do much better by going and being a jams or some other uh, advocate uh, or a judge. Uh, the fact is that we should look at everything, including uh, the court's retirement system, to say, are we in fact encouraging the loss of judges three, five, or ten years earlier uh, than we should? Conversely, and and I had this in my last bill, and Justice Roberts did not like it, uh, have we come up with a system to ensure that older judges are fairly evaluated for whether or not they can continue to serve effectively? And, And I say that because some, as you know, sometimes the most ideological judges remain the longest, but sometimes, uh, many of the, the, the circuits are not very good at limiting cases or dealing with a judge who no longer cognitively are really able to handle uh, the load. And, uh, you know, we, we test for the president of the United States to, uh, for his cognitive capability. We have no such similar test whatsoever. And we have had cases of judges who are well on their way to dementia who do not right. want to step aside. So right, who are uh, often propped are, up by by their clerks, who are who are not uh, appointed and confirmed to these posts. Um, it's it's a very it's a very uh, interesting point that you make. And I wonder. I mean, obviously, judges have life tenure um, by the Constitution. But would you would you favor a constitutional amendment to impose? Um, mandatory retirement at say 80, or do you think just think that the the circuits and the administrative offices of the courts need to step in and play a bigger role? Uh, you know, I, I tread lightly on touching what has worked for our 
our republic for so long. Uh, one of the reasons that I do support uh, uh, periodic physical and cognitive exams for uh, uh, for judges at government expense, and then a decision not not a, it's certainly not to be made public, but a decision within by the the, the uh, uh, chief judge of that circuit of that district. Uh, as to what the caseload should be for that uh, that judge, uh, I think that there's a balance there that uh, mm-hmm. would help. Uh, you know, it's uh, I you know I think that many judges don't recognize their own shortcomings, and they're not going to recognize it unless there's what we used to call a come to Jesus meeting, and and I think that we can we in Congress have an obligation to say, if you're going to serve for a lifetime, it does create more questions of your physical and mental ability to do so, but that we need to do it in a, in a apolitical way. So I, I continue to believe that that's one of the reforms. Uh, one of the other reforms I'd like to touch on briefly uh, is how we fill slots. Currently, no slot may be put before the Senate for a judge until there's a vacancy. Um, what's interesting about that is that's not how we replace members of the House and Senate for the most part. Members of the House and Senate uh, typically have a period of time in which they announce that they're not going to run again, uh, or even if they're defeated, there's a smooth transition in which it's only a, an hour's time or less between the departure of a House member, let's say, a House or Senate member, and his or her replacement. Uh, in the case of the President of the United States, there's a statutory overlap of the two presidents uh, so that there's a, a smooth, normally a smooth handshake mm-hmm. uh, on January 20th. Uh, the modernization of the court should anticipate the same thing, and I, I believe strongly that uh, judges at least should be able to declare their intent to uh, take senior status or retire, and that, for example, a year ahead of time, that should empower the president to propose a, or to nominate a replacement, which the Senate would be free to vet and vote on, and that once they were voted on, in my opinion, they could take a temporary slot, temporary only in the sense that the other slot has not been vacated. Uh, and if we did so, then what would, could potentially happen is, let's just say it takes six months to, uh, to fill a slot, you would have judges coming on four, six, maybe even eight months ahead of the, the retirement of their predecessor. They would be available to begin taking cases. Uh, it wouldn't be a dra- dramatic increase in the number but it would mean that, for example, today with 100 vacancies on the court, if, if instead of 100 vacancies you had 100 people giving notice that they were going to take senior status, you would then begin filling those slots. From a human resource standpoint, just good business practice, that's a better way to make sure that the court has the people and that they're in place uh, without a rise and fall in vacancies. And this is particularly important when you have a political environment in which many judges choose to retire only at a time when they believe that uh, a like-minded replacement would would be nominated. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not going to change, you and I aren't going to change that uh, likelihood, 
but we are in a position to create a smooth transition. So it's a modernization that would mirror what we do for the president, what we do for the House and the Senate. I believe we should be able to do that, uh, and for that matter, what we do for cabinet positions where someone can notice that they're leaving and the president can send to the Senate the replacement even before that individual has left. I right. believe we should be able to do the same thing for federal judges. Interesting idea. And I want to thank you, Congressman, for your leadership on this, on all of these issues surrounding the courts, and particularly your commitment to reforms um, implemented in a nonpartisan way um, and implemented in a way that impacts the ability of both parties to influence the courts in the same way. Um, that's, that's something that's, that's really lacking these days in many ways, with, with each side trying to use the courts as a political football. Um, and, and your leadership in keeping the, the courts apolitical um, is greatly appreciated. So thank you so much for talking to us about, about the federal courts today and for all you do on the Judiciary Committee. Thank you, Jennifer. I look forward to uh, coming back with some status reports on what we've been able to accomplish. Thank you for joining us today for She Thinks. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That's iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode, do leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you'd share this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.